Well, it, first of all, it's good for us to be here, and I've been looking forward to this just a little bit. I uh, had a discussion with Michael not too, too long ago, and I said, hey, what would church look like if we just turned the lights on? You know, normally we do, um, our, our worship um, center is set up with the lights down, and, and believe it or not, everything that we do in here is done super intentionally. None of it is done accidentally, or um, none of it, honestly, is done for a cool factor. We're not shooting for a cool factor. Believe it or not, the reason that we normally keep the lights done in the, down in the worship center is so that if somebody who's not used to being in church comes in and wants to worship and um, finds themselves in a brightly lit room, they, you can see because they tend to look around to see if they're doing it right. Really. And so we thought, well, if we, if we, if we dim the lights a little bit, I mean, we're not trying to put anybody in the dark, but if we dim the lights a little bit, people can feel comfortable about worshiping, praying, getting on their knees, holding their hands up, whatever it might be. So everything that gets done around here gets done um, super intentionally. But all things considered, um, you know, there are a lot of churches that are doing some sort of a, you know, a, a, I don't know, a, an interview show on Sunday mornings. There are some that are, you can walk into and there's an eight-foot, you know, um, X-wing fighter hanging from the ceiling and they're doing a sermon series on movies and everybody's dressed like they just got off the Star Wars set. And it's like, in my heart, I've just been screaming and crying for the last couple of months. God, is the church getting it right? Because is, is the goal just get people in the door with whatever hook is absolutely possible and then, you know, say what you want to say? Um, a lot of churches are, are doing kind of a, a clinical self-help topic series. And it's like, is that what we're supposed to be doing? And, and I tend to, to be that person that says we're supposed to be making disciples who know the teachings of Jesus Christ, who surrender to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and then who follow Jesus Christ. And when they screw up, get back up and keep moving. Don't throw rocks at each other. None of us has the right to throw a rock at the person next to us. So take a deep breath and lighten up on yourselves. And I hate to say it, but sometimes the people that we're throwing rocks at tend to be the people that we're closest to. And by throw rocks, I mean they're the ones we're hardest on. And I'm not saying Jesus is okay with us sinning. I'm just saying he's not taking a stick and beating you to death when you do. But think of it this way. Think of it a lot like a, 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 a one-year-old, and, and you're trying to teach that little one-year-old or two-year-old how old kids, I only had five of them, but I can't even remember when they learned to walk. But that being said, okay, you know, let's just, can I just say two? Let's say two, two years old, and they're going to learn how to walk, okay? And so you're, you're holding their little finger, because I got a little grandson right now, and I'm holding his little finger when we walk down the sidewalk, and he holds, and then he wants to run, okay, but then he falls over. I don't pick him up and then beat him. I don't pick him up and say, Judah, are you so stupid? Have you been with us two whole years and you can't even walk yet? It's like, what the heck, dude? You know, or I don't say, listen, what do you want? He says, hi, I'm Ron I say, listen, use real words or you get nothing. When you learn to use real words, then we'll give you something to eat, okay? We don't do that. We don't. Why do we think God does that to us? Why? Why do you think that when you, I don't know why we call it this, mess up in your walk with God, that he's done and you got to start all over with him. You don't. You just got to say, Dad, I'm sorry. Papa, Abba, Father, please forgive me and get back up. Now listen to me. The goal is to come away from the sin, not to keep doing it and keep asking for forgiveness. Okay? That's the goal. <laughs> but what we have entered into is a journey with God. 
You didn't get a ticket to heaven or out of hell when you started your relationship with Jesus. You entered into a journey with God. And that means you have to grow. You have to mature. You have to work at it. And that's what this is all about. Um, I, I, for, for lack of a better term, because I've been wrestling with this for quite a while, you came in here this morning. Who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? I mean, I love that we come in here and we have quality people doing quality things to move the kingdom of God forward. I love that we come in here and you know that we're going to worship, especially second service. I'm not saying that, you know, first service doesn't worship. I'm just saying first service is a little like, you know, all right, you know, come on, it's okay. The Holy Spirit can get a hold of you people. And they're like, he is, can't you see it? It's like, no, no. But I know, but, but every time I go to staff meeting on Monday, the staff is like, man, that's second service. They come to worship. They come to yell, scream, holler, and say, come on, Lord. And there's a lot of truth to that. Here's the deal. It's a lot like what happened the day after um, Easter, or the day of Easter, I guess I should say that. See, they come in here expecting God. I was wrestling with this thing where the angel said, who is it you're looking for? Or when Jesus said, hey, who are you looking for? And people didn't recognize him. We've come into this church, some of us, to worship. We've come in this church out of desperation. God, you got to move. Something's got to change. I'm hurting. I've screwed it up. It's okay to say that. In this church, it is okay to say that. I'm hooked on drugs. I made a mistake. I messed up. God, please, I need help. And this is not the church in heaven help us um, where we're going to throw rocks at you for saying you need help because I'm telling you right now, your pastor needs help. Okay, now I know most of you know that by now. Okay, but I'm just saying. I'm just Peter trying to show everybody else where Jesus is. And I need people to pray for me and care for me and surround me just like anybody else does. I know I'm going to be head, held to a higher standard. I know that. There's no doubt in my mind when I meet Jesus, that's the deal. But here's the deal. We come in out of desperation because we want God to move in our lives. We come in here because, well, it's a duty. It's Sunday, right? It's, I'm, we're second service people, so let's go, people. You know, and some of you dads lighten up a little bit because you're like, honey, get them kids in the car. Honey, get them kids dressed. Honey, get them kids some breakfast. Hey, you get the kids dressed. You get the kids breakfast while she's getting herself ready, and you get the kids in the car, and watch what happens. Life will be a lot more peaceful. Unless, unless your children, you know, are not like real godly children, you know, and I know second service doesn't have children like that, and they wreck your heart all the way to church, and you're like, I don't think I can even go there and worship now. I just feel like if the pastor could just get me some repentance first, then I can go repent, and then maybe I can meet Jesus in the worship song because my kids, I'm going to kill them, okay? And we did, just to go on record, we don't believe in that in this church, okay? So don't do it, all right? That's where I am. But some of you have come in here to find community, and you're lonely. Nothing wrong with that. That's why we're a church of small groups, and if you're not in a small group, I'm just telling you that's where you need to be. You need to be in a small group. Because that small group leader is your first pastoral line. And then, if the thing is bigger for the, than the small group can, can help you with, they bring it to the church staff. And if it's bigger than that, then we involve outside counselors and whatnot all. And our goal is to help you find healing in Jesus Christ. That's our goal. 
Um, maybe you are in here because of your upbringing, because you know that if you don't come in here, you'll get home, and I'm telling you, the, the ghost of your granny will come and curdle the milk in your fritter or whatever you're eating, and you'll just die. And it's like, because granny has not stopped watching. She is part of that great cloud of witnesses. Okay, in Hebrews chapter 11, your granny is in there. And so you're like, oh, we got to get to church. Granny's watching kids. Okay, it's all right. Do that, all right? Um, I hope we've all come in to meet God. A God who is alive, a God who is living, a God who was raised from the dead, a God who literally wants to make a difference in your life, okay? I hope we've come to sacrifice our praise to God, and I thank God that we don't have to bring bulls and sheep and goats and kill them all and turn this whole front end into a bloody mess the way they used to in, in Israel's day. They don't have to do that. But as I think about chasing after God and what we're in here for, one of the things that I got to um, um, refocus on during, we did a thing called um, the Easter Experience at the Vineyard, where on Wednesday we just set up some stations out there and you could come in at your own leisure and you could just sit down and you could process stuff. And one of them um, was the names of God. It was just a board that had the names of God on it. And, uh, you know, like um, people give a name to God. I'm not saying God said this is my name. But in the Old Testament, people gave a name to God based on what they were going through and the struggle and when God met their need. And they said, okay, this is, for instance, um, um, we're going to talk about Abram and Sarai, or Abraham and Sarah, however you want to know them, okay? Um, Abraham took Isaac up on a mountain, and he was going to kill him dead because God said, kill him! And he didn't question it. He just took him up there to kill him, and it was like, this is, I don't know how, you know, Sarah's not going to like me for this one. Um, but he took him up there, and right before, you know, he stabbed him to death, uh, Scripture says that the angel of the Lord called out to his name, said, knock it off, put the knife down, and then provided a ram in the thicket. And the ram in the thicket is Jehovah Jireh, God, Jehovah, the God who provides, okay? Or in God it will be provided. There's a number of different ways to say that. So, so we recognize that the name of God is usually what we'll call him when you interact with him, okay? He has come to be my father, my Abba father. That didn't used to be a good word to me. I wasn't raised in a Christian household. So the word father when I got saved was like, yeah, we can't call him that. No. Um, but now I can because I've, I've learned who he is, okay? And that's the most powerful one to me. But <clears throat> Sorry, Lord, let's get over it. Um, um, but today I want to talk about this, because this is the one I met this Wednesday. El, that means God in, in um, the Old Testament. El, Roi, that means God, the God who sees me. I'm going through a, a time in my life right now, and some of you are entering into it without even knowing it by sending me things and um, loving on me. But, you know, just typical human things. But there's those times in our lives when we want to know, God, do you even know what I'm going through? Do you see what's going on down here? It's a struggle. And it might be your marriage just blew up. It might be you just got fired. It might be um, somebody just robbed you, you know, in one of those Internet schemes, and you really thought you were going to get the $50 million, you know, and it's like you didn't, okay? But they took your $1,000, and that's all you had. Um, it, it may be a decision that you made, and it went south, and you have to suffer the consequences. But you know what? My God still isn't throwing rocks at you. My God is still saying, get back up. Come on. We can do this. And so for me, um, to, to fall in love with God in the moment of Easter was to hear him say that he is God, the God who sees me. He sees what's going on in Richmond. He sees what's going on um, in our church. He sees what's going on in our communities. He sees what's going on in our nation. He sees what's going on in our world. And guess what? He's not gotten off the throne yet. He hasn't. And what I love more than anything is he didn't rain down sulfur and fire and burn us all up. 
because every single one of us deserve that. There is none that is good, no, not one. So if you think he needs to do it to somebody else, be careful, okay? Because you might be standing next to that person. But um, El Roi is the name God who sees me. And this is a story of a servant girl turned princess. Um, she gave that name to God when her world came crashing down. And that story is found in the book of Genesis in chapter 16. We're going to read all 15 verses of this, if you'll just linger with us. If you have one of these really cool things, okay, everybody's going to be buying one of these lately, so you better get one fast, okay, because everybody's got a phone. Nobody's going to want a phone anymore. They're going to want one of these deals, okay? Um, this is called a Bible, all right? In case you haven't seen one, I'm not trying to be overly sarcastic, maybe a little sarcastic, but not overly sarcastic, but a little bit. Okay, I believe Jesus would have carried a cell phone and it would have had you version on it. I, I just, I honestly do, okay? You can carry more of a library, but here it is. In, I like to hold this thing. In the book of Genesis, chapter 16. Now Sarai, that's Sarah, okay? But now Sarai, Abram's wife, Abram is Abraham. God's going to change their names. So now Sarah, uh, Sarai and Abram's, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar, okay? So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram, Abram agreed to what Sarai said. I, that's just the dumbest line in the whole Bible, I think. You know, it's like, really? Sarah, how did you think that one was going to pan out? Really? It's like, Abram's like, okay, you said so. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, gave her to her husband to be his wife, not just to have sex with, to be his wife, okay? Now Abram's got two, and he slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to, to, to despise her mistress. When Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong that I'm suffering. Is the irony lost on anybody? I'm just asking. Hey, Abraham, go do this. Hey, it worked. Hey, Abraham, this is your fault. I'm suffering. What's up with that? But anyway, when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for, the suffering, uh, for my suffering, and I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. <laughs> she did not want any judging going on at that time. Okay. Abram says, your servant is in your hand, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. And Sarai mistreat, abused her, just mistreated Hagar. So she fled. All right? She fled. All right? The angel of the Lord found Hagar in a spring in the, the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road of Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where, what, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she said. And I just want a little caveat right here. I just want to say this to you, okay? When you are running away from your problems, you are not running to anything. When you're running away, okay, you're not going to get the help you want because you're going to continue to run and run and run and run. It's better to run to something run to God and then have the angel of the Lord say, 
Hagar, where are you going? And she can say, life's tough, I'm running to God. Instead, she said, life's tough, I'm running away from my problems. I'm just telling you, running away from your problems in the world of running away from, or of having problems really doesn't work. Deal with them. And so there's, there she is. Okay, I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. So the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child and you will have a son and you will give him the name Ishmael. For the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. Okay, that nation still exists. That people group still exists in the world today. All right? And he will live in hostility, excuse me, toward all of his brothers. She gave the name the Lord uh, gave the name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen, caveat back of the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lai Lahai Rohi. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave him the name Ishmael. To the, gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Okay, so he's 86 years old, and he finally inherited the promise that God had made him when he said to him, Abram, if you will come and follow me, I will take you out, and I will make you a nation, and I will make you a blessing to all nations, and I will make you a people group that is so big that it will be like the sand of the sea. Nobody will be able to count your people. That's what I'm going to do for you. And as they go out, they're in the, the land of Canaan, and, and Sarai's not getting pregnant, and Sarai's not getting pregnant, and Sarai's not getting pregnant. And you know how it is when God makes us a promise, because I, I told you last, uh, last week um, over Easter, Easter is a promise. God made us a promise at Easter that our sins are forgiven, and he goes to prepare a place for us. And if he goes to prepare a place, he's coming back to get us, so don't sweat this world. He's coming back. Well, here's a promise. I'm going to give you, I mean, a, a nation's going to come out of your loins, Abram, you and Sarah. And, and they're like, yes, we're going to be a nation. And they run off and they follow God and they, they leave and they go through Haran and they, they keep on going. And all this is going, but they're not having children. Abram's 75 years old when all this begins. He's 86 years old right now. And you get, you know, 13, 14, 15 years down the road. And you're like, God's not doing what God promised. So I guess what? What do we do as human beings? We'll make it happen. Huh? We'll make it happen. God said he's going to give us this. So let's just go put our name on a $300,000 note with 25% interest. Because that's the only way God could do it. No, no, but that's the way they did. That's the way Sarai came and said, listen, this God we're following is not getting me children. I'm getting pretty ticked off about it. You better have that woman. Abram's like, well, okay. And we have nations, extended nations, that are still fighting everybody and everybody is fighting them. The result of Abraham's indiscretion, if I can be gentle with you, still plagues the entire globe today. We can talk later. But that's the situation. 
So we've got this story, and Hagar gets pregnant, and she starts getting all fired cocky, and she's the, uh, the, uh, the wife, one of the wives of Abram now, and so she starts you know, putting it in Sarai's face, and I don't know how that went, but it was ugly enough that Sarai just decided, hey, we're not handling this, and Abram said, do what you want, and, and there's no doubt in my mind, based upon the culture, that uh, Sarai probably started beating her and, and got really ugly with her, and, and she decided she had to go. And so she goes out into the wilderness, and the angel of the Lord shows up and says, what are you doing here? She says, I'm running from my problems. And the angel says, running from your problems is never going to save you from your problems. And so she goes back, because the angel of the Lord says, you go back and deal with your problems. You submit to your problems. You don't know what God might be doing in your life by making you submit to a difficult situation, but you're not allowed to run away from it. So we have this picture. And as I was reading this, and, and going to the place that I want to go with you, and these are the things that fall over from Easter last, year, or last weekend, that Easter is a promise. Here's the deal. God's promises are sure. They're true. You can count on them. If God has given you a promise, and there's no doubt in your mind that it's a promise, I would encourage you to type it up and then blow it up to like 85-point font and stick it on the front of your refrigerator and said, God has given me that promise, and I'm going to cling to it. I'm going to cling to it. I'm going to pray into it every day. I'm going to thank God for it every day. I'm going to speak about it. But I am not going to let go of this promise. There it is, because God's promise is sure. If you haven't received it yet, I just need you to know right now, he's not let you down. He has not let you down. He might not be doing what you want, but if it is a promise from God, he will be doing what he said. And so many times we confuse the things that we make up in our hearts as promises of God and then demand that he do it. And we don't approach God in surrender and say, God, what do you want me to do? And so we end up mad at God for, I don't want to say no reason, but in the midst of our hurt, we end up mad at God because he didn't perform for us. But he's, he's God and we're not. I love what Joshua said when he was about to die and he knew that he needed to go be with God. But he said, now that I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and what he's saying is, you know, everybody dies. And now that I'm about to die, okay, they'd entered the promised land. They had received the inheritance. Everybody is in their land allotment. He said, you know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. You can count on the promises of God. You can do that. Second thing I want to share with you real quick is that God's promises require patience and trust. And let's just be honest, we are not a patient people. We are not a patient culture. We got drive through everything. We got drive through hamburger on every day but Sunday. We got drive through chicken sandwiches. We got drive through French fries. We got drive through banking. We got drive through clothes launderers. My wife said, hey, we got to go get the, the, the dry cleaning. And I said, okay. And I said, just pull right up there. She said, no, they got a drive-through. Go to Las Vegas, they got drive-through marriages. And there's just no doubt in my mind, they got drive-through divorces. And I'm not here to throw rocks at anybody, but we are a society that does not like to wait. We're like, God, thank you for all the blessings you've given me. I'm so busy now, I don't have time for you. I'm sorry. Do you really think that blessing came from God if it's keeping you from God? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. God's promises require patience. Wait. Wait. 
I'm sure Joseph didn't like the waiting at the bottom of the well. I'm sure he didn't like waiting in Pharaoh's prison. I'm sure Potiphar's prison. I'm sure he didn't mind waiting in Pharaoh's house when he finally got there. But we aren't a people who like to wait. But God's promises require patience. Read the Bible. Don't take my word for it. Okay? But they also require trust. And we don't always trust God because we're kind of afraid that he won't do it the way we want it done, when we want it done, and how we want it done. See? So we don't do it God's way, and then we shake our fist at God when it doesn't turn out well. Just like Sarai and Abram. There is a place where we've got to back up and say, trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understandings, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Because he said, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your, your thoughts. Point three, God's promises are built on God's plans, not your plans. See, we've got this idea, and please correct me if I'm wrong and challenge me if you would like to, but we live in a society, a Christian society, where people do not surrender their lives to Jesus. They accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And if you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I promise you, you will get up from your knees and you will say, God, I need you to do this, this, and this for me. And when God doesn't do it for you, say, I tried God, he didn't work. Instead, we surrender our lives to God and to what he has done for us. And then when you get up from your knees, you say, God, I surrender all. What do you want me to do? And when he says, I want you to go love this person. I want you to go take care of that. I want you to do this. I want you to go to the mission field. We say, yes, sir. See, because we've got this idea that each one of us individually is the center of God's whole world, right? You know where we get that from? Because God will leave the 99 to get the one. I'm the one. The problem is I'm forever the one. You know what? I got thrown in with the 99. There's 100 of us now, but I'm still telling the other 99. So what? I'm the one. I'm the one. I'm the favorite one. You want me to give you an example of that? You know who John, John um, um, the Revelator is? You know who John the Revelator is? You know what John the Revelator calls himself? The one. I'm the one Jesus loves. There's 12 of you. It doesn't matter. Peter, the, the one whom Jesus loves, said, Peter, ask him who he's talking about. We ran to the tomb, but the one that Jesus loves outran him. Come on. We need to get over ourselves. It's about Jesus, not Joe Wood. Now here, does Jesus care about what you're going through? Absolutely. Does he know when you've got a hangnail? Yes. Does he know when it's 2.30 in the morning and you woke up because you had too much water before you went to bed and the 115-pound corso stood in your way and you tripped over him? Yes. Does he want you to end his life? No. Okay, tell him to go back in his bed. All right? He cares about the little things. I mean, come on, how many times do we get in the car to come to church and we're like, come on, get the kids, come on, do this. You know what I said at the beginning. It's like, come on, we get all out of sorts and we get to church and we're not sure we can sing because we keep making it about us and it's about Jesus. But as I entered into Easter, and was processing what was going on, one of my all-time unanswered questions that comes from, you know, Abraham and Sarah and moves forward through all this stuff because God has a name, is this. Why didn't people recognize Jesus? Why did Jesus' mom go to the tomb and assume that Jesus was the gardener and say, if you know where they put him, could you tell me? And he says, Mary, and she's Rabbani. And it's like, don't touch me, not yet. Why? 
Because when I think about the people that saw Jesus in the Easter story, there were the temple guards. They had a job to do. They needed to succeed. Think about this. This is why I think they didn't see Jesus. Because they needed to succeed, and they were focused on succeeding, not Jesus. Watch this. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples, crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden. He and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came into the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials of the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was about to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Now remember, Judas is standing right there. Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth replied, I am he. Jesus said, the Judas, the traitor, was standing right there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell over on the ground like a bunch of pickup sticks. Pickup sticks is my version of what took place. That You're not going to find it in the Scripture. Okay? Just go with me on this. So they all fell down. And again, Jesus said, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. And Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. So they walk right up to Jesus with Judas standing right there. And don't you think Judas is going, that's the one, that's the one, that's the one, kiss. And Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I'm him. And they all fall over. They didn't recognize Jesus when Judas said, I'm going to kiss the one. Okay? They were looking to get a job done. And they were focused on the job, not the person. Personal opinion. All right? Mary goes to the garden. She's lost her firstborn. She's watched him beat within an inch of his life, shredded his physical body. He looks nasty. He looks gross. It looks awful. And Jesus is standing there, not yet in what we would call his resurrected body, but certainly resurrected from the dead body. And he's standing there, and, and um, you know, Mary's looking around and says, Sir, do you know where they put my son? It's her son. It's her son. One of the Marys that went to the tomb was Mary. It's her son. And she didn't recognize him. Why? Because she wasn't looking for Jesus. She was looking for the bloody mass that was on the cross, wrapped up in cloth. So when Jesus showed up, it wasn't, there's no way. She saw him die. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down to their faces to the ground. When the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you that while he was still in Galilee. And then John says it this way. At this, Mary turns around and sees Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, her own son, she said, sir, if you carried him away, tell me where they put him and I'll go get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turns around toward him and cries out in Aramaic, Rabbi, teacher, my child, son, what a, this is who I'm looking for. Now it makes sense. Two men were on the road to Emmaus and they lost a political leader and they wanted change. They weren't looking for Jesus. They were looking for political change. So in Luke 24, it says, Now the same day, two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, Hey, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still with their faces downcast. And one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? Now, I don't know how you read the, the Bible. Maybe you read it with an Australian accent and you read it really slow. Okay, maybe that's how you do because your U version is set that way. But in my heart, in my head, there's a lot of sarcasm in that question. 
We're serious, dude. Are you, have you buried your head in the sand? Do you not know what's been going on? They crucified this guy and he said he was going to be raised from the dead. And his disciples said that, you know, this happened and people are saying, no, it didn't. Some people ran off with him and all the things. Are you the only one that doesn't know what's going on? There's some sarcasm in there. Maybe not a lot, but there's a little. It's right there. You see, these stories all have the same thing in common. And I think they have the same thing in common for you and I. Hagar cried out and God met her and God became the God who sees me. But sometimes, based on what we've been through scripturally, what we've experienced personally, we come into church or we come into our quiet time and we have an expectation of who God is and we don't let God be God because we've decided what we need and what needs to take place. And I believe that people didn't, didn't recognize Jesus back then because the Jesus they wanted to find is not the Jesus that my Father God sent. Not at all. See, Peter, I'm going to do this. Peter, he gave up and went back fishing, according to the book of John. He lost his purpose, and he wanted purpose. And Jesus was going to be his purpose, but it was still a political purpose in his mind. And the scripture says early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. They saw him. They didn't know it was him. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? He's talking to them now, and they still don't see Jesus. No, they answered. And he said, so throw your net down to the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the nets in because of the large number of fish. And then the disciples, <laughs> can we all just laugh? And then the disciple that Jesus loved, <laughs> there's, that, there's that one, right? The one in the 99. The disciple that Jesus loved said, it is the Lord. And I love this. As soon as Peter heard John say, it is the Lord, he wraps his garment around him and just jumps out of the boat. I don't know how deep it was. They were 100 yards out. Scripture's going to say in a minute. They're 100 yards out. And he just jumps out of the boat very reminiscent of Jesus walking on the water and when he says Lord if that's you call me and Jesus says then come and Peter's like out of the boat and once again the other 11 stay in the boat and look at this look at this it says uh, um, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water the other disciples followed in the boat they're like Peter we're coming we got a lot of money here we can't let go of the money. I know you think that's Jesus, but we got a lot of money in this boat. We're bringing the money. And it says, they followed in the boat, towing. They didn't bring the fish in the boat. They towed the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. It says right there in the scripture. And these stories all have the same thing in common. They're there. People didn't recognize Jesus because the Jesus they wanted to find isn't the Jesus that our God, our Father God. He's not the political power that's going to up root the, the world. He's not going to give everybody the Christian lollipops once you surrender to him. That's, that's not Jesus. He's not going to solve all the problems. He's going to empower us to get involved. And when we don't get involved and we shake our fist at God and say, why God do this? I think God has the right to look down and say, why aren't you doing that? The very thing that you're asking me to do. Why aren't you doing it? I believe that when we even come into church, we don't meet Jesus because the Jesus that we're imagining isn't the Jesus that exists. My Jesus loves hard. If you read the Bible, he loves hard. 
oh my word, he will love you and love you and love you till you're so sick of being loved by him. <laughs> he will love you again. He will love you. He obeys radically. When was the last time a Christian that you know obeyed radically? You want me to go down there and die on a cross, get beaten within an inch of my life, get shredded so that I don't even look like a human being? Sure, Dad, I'll go. I'm in. Sign me up. Let's go. Who but for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorn, and shame, then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God? He obeys radically. He loves ridiculously. You know, we run out of love. That's enough. That's enough. You've done. That's the end of what I've got. That's not what it says. 490 times a day we're called to forgive people if that's what it takes over and over and over because that's the way God forgives us. God forgives us in a very, very wanton manner. A very, very wanton manner. Meaning that he just lavishes us on it. It lavishes it on us. And I know Christian people are like, well, God's not going to tolerate that. You're not God. And he said you're to forgive 490 times a day, but he doesn't invite us to keep sinning. He invites us to come away from a life of sin when you do sin and fall down, get back up. Get back up. When you miss the mark, get back up. Lighten up on yourself. He gives generously. We'll talk about that next week. We serve a God who gives generously, and we've got to stop believing that we have to earn it. You can't be good enough to gain God's favor. You can be obedient enough, I think, because if you're being obedient, you're going to do with what he gives you, what he wants you to do with it. And then he can trust you with it. If he can trust you with a little, he can trust you with a lot. If he can't trust you with a little, ask yourself, why would he give you a lot? Why? God expects significantly. He calls loudly, but we don't always listen. And he challenges us immensely. The Jesus that we often are looking for as human beings doesn't think like we do, doesn't act like we do, doesn't forgive like we do, doesn't give like we do, and doesn't love like we do. And I would encourage you that it is time for us to stop and say, we need to surrender our lives to Jesus if we want to see a new life. If we want to see life changed, if we want to see lives healed, if we want to see relationships healed, if we want to see children healed, if we want to see uh, things that we've never dreamed of. If you want to know that God says that you will see greater things, that's not going to happen until we stop and we find Jesus, not the God of our making, the one from the Scripture who tells us to love our enemy, bless those who per persecute us, and pray for those who despitefully use us. I think that's the hardest teaching of Jesus in my own personal life. How do we do that? And it hurts so much and is so difficult. I'm telling you right now that God in heaven wants to touch your life this morning. And I don't know what that means because he's God and I'm not. And so I'm going to say a prayer and we're going to go into our last song. And these people are up here because we would like to pray with you and pray for you. No matter what it is that you're going through, we want to pray with you this morning because we want God to do something in your life. So let's pray. Father, as we come before you, we thank you for the story of Hagar. 
We thank you for a promise given. We thank you, Lord, that sometimes it takes a while and we've got to be patient and trust. But God, I know and I believe that you have never failed to fulfill your promise as you made it, not as I expected. Forgive us for making you into a rag doll or an idol or a God who only can do what we think you can do and you need to do it our way. Forgive us, Lord, for shortchanging your grace and mercy with sinners around us, but think you lavish it on us personally. God, teach us to put our rocks down and to pick up our invitations for people to come into a relationship with you that's real and not manufactured because it's what we all want to hear. As we come before you, God, we invite you to be God, but please touch our lives here this morning. In Jesus' holy name, amen. If you are facing something, going through something, struggling with something, needing something, doesn't matter where it is, I believe so much in prayer, it's like start with God start with God. So come up to our feet. We're going to go into this song. While we're singing this song, you can come right up here and just ask these people to pray for you.